listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Monday, March 6th. I'm Shelby from Drake University, and here is our first story. From a boxcar to LULAC founding member, Ernest Rodriguez reflects on his life, written by Tom Lowy. Ernest Rodriguez was born March 6, 1928, inside boxcar number 8 in a place called Holy City. It was in that Bettendorf burial that brothers named Gonzo and Rico christened Rodriguez with the name that stuck for the rest of his life. They called him Tucci for reasons as swept away as those old boxcars. Rodriguez turns 95 on Monday. Today he lives with his son, Alfonso, and daughter-in-law, Lisa. From a comfortable recliner, he recalled a colorful life that started in Holy City, featured brief stops in Chicago, Milwaukee, the U.S. Army, and a few distant points before he returned to settle in Davenport. Tucci was one of the founding members of LULAC, became a labor organizer, community activist, a friend to many, who never remained strangers very long, and a father who lived a very real legacy for his sons and daughters. I remember Holy City, Rodriguez said. I do remember the boxcars, just a little. And I remember when we moved up to the hill to the flats, there were two story buildings and we had a community outhouse. There weren't many bathrooms in Holy City, further east in Holy City, as I remember, were the cottages. Holy City was basically a company town and was built on land owned by the Bettendorf Company. The men worked in the company's foundries, building underframes and railroad cars. Rodriguez recalled the Marcias brothers, the men who were instrumental in the founding of Holy City. After the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, David and Manuel Marcias helped recruit 150 Mexicans from Kansas and El Paso, Texas, to work in the foundries. Rodriguez's father, Norberto, was one of those men. The neighborhood was bordered by the Mississippi River and the Milwaukee Railroad tracks that ran along State Street. Rodriguez laughed when he thought about Holy City. I still don't know why they called it that, he said. I always told people it was because all the holes in the road. It was all dirt road out there, as I remember it. No city water, no electric lights. But I liked living there. The people were friendly. There were plenty of room to play. Rodriguez's family moved out of Holy City into Davenport. He graduated from Davenport High School, now called Davenport Central, in 1946. His first job was at Farmel. It lasted, Tucci estimated, all of about three days. They put me in the foundry, and it was too damn hot, he said. The sand on the foundry floor was red hot. Every day I was there, I fell asleep during the ride home. That was not for me. For a time, Rodriguez wrote and published his own newspaper, the El Reportero. He delivered the papers himself. During that time, the Rodriguez family lived in the area of Fillmore and 7th Streets. 
not many of the neighbors wanted to live near non-white people. They had a petition to get us to move, Rodriguez said. We were the only minority family in the area. Years later, after Rodriguez started his own family, he wanted to move to the east side of Davenport. They were told by realtors that there were only allowed in the neighborhood around 6 and Tremont streets. It was the late 1960s and Rodriguez had never heard of redlining. Rodriguez's career as an organizer started in 1959. Gil Fernandez had a bar down near the corner of 3rd Street and Gaines Street, and we always gathered there in a room above the tavern, he said. Back then, the city passed a law about liquor and taverns, and they came right to Gil's bar and shut it down. It was the only bar that they shut down, so we all got together and went to the city council meeting, and we complained until they gave Gil his license back. Rodriguez and his fam- friends sent a message to the city, and Tucci soon learned about the real power of organizing. Gil, I think, knew a man in Fort Madison who was part of the LULAC there, Rodriguez said. That man came and talked to us, and that struck a bell. Gil, myself, and about eight or ten other men decided to start a chapter here. And there was one woman in the charter member, Gil's girlfriend. We called her Chada. I'm unsure if I pronounced that right, so I'll spell it um, C-H-A-T-A. Chada Serrano. Rodriguez took to activism and organizing. In the subsequent years, he would be a labor organizer worked extensively for the Illinois Migrant Council and devoted hours to LULAC. When he married Juanita, his second wife, the blended family included eight children. Alfonso Rodriguez was the second youngest of the four children Ernest and Juanita had together. There are people to this day who approached me with a story about how my dad helped their mom or dad find a job or how he found money so someone could go to college, Alfonso Rodriguez said. It's amazing how many lives my dad touched. He had made an impression on me, that's for sure. Alfonso Rodriguez was born in 1962, recalled one of his earliest memories of his father. I remember living on the West End and dad walking to work at Oscar Mayer. Every day, with a rolled up towel under his arm, he said. And I remember being little and joining my father outside the Eagle and Randall's grocery store to boycott the grapes. That was in support of Cesar Chavez's farm workers movement. In the 1960s, Rodriguez was working with John Terrones to organize unions at places like the Louis Rich meatpacking plant. Tucci also was heavily involved in the Iowa Spanish Speaking People's Commission advancing access and equality for Hispanic people. Rodriguez had a public profile, but turned down a political life. He preferred the hands-on role of community organizer and activist. My father was on TV every Sunday with a man named Simon Roberts. Everyone called him Cy. Alfonso Rodriguez said, Cy was an activist too, and he had a TV show, and he and my dad always talked about labor issues. Looking back, I think my dad could have run for office, but 
but he was just never interested in that. During the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, Rodriguez remained glued to LULAC and turned some of his time to the Davenport, Davenport Human Rights Commission. He left a legacy carried by those closest to him. Alfonso Rodriguez went on to serve as steward of the union at Crescent City Bakery and had dedicated time to trying to help others. He has been a lifelong union member. The man born in boxcar number eight and known throughout the Quad Cities as Tucci only laughed and shrugged when he asked about his legacy. His son found words. My dad is the last survivor of his family. He had eight siblings and they are all gone now, Alfonso Rodriguez said. He had lived a life standing up for people and organizing people and helping people. I think he can be proud of that. I know I'm proud that he's my dad. At the bottom of the page, I can see a photo that looks to be Ernest Rodriguez. He is sitting in a black recliner wearing a brown and black flanneled button-up long sleeve shirt. And he looks to be smiling. He has um, oval frame glasses with a thin black frame. And he just is giving a big smile to the camera. Our next story will be... Council Bluffs Police Department Traffic Unit does a lot more than just write tickets. It is written by David Goldbitz. On the top of the article, we can see a Council Bluffs police officer named Brandon Flowers. He's standing at a black podium and he looks to be in uniform wearing a black baseball cap. He has short brown hair and he has a bunch of tattoos on his arms. He looks to be presenting to a council or an office room perhaps because there is a presentation going on beside him on a TV. So let's get to the article. Sure, the Council Bluffs Police Department's traffic unit issues tickets if you're caught speeding or arrests you if you're driving while intoxicated, but the job entails a lot more than that usually called to the scene of serious or fatal traffic accidents. The officers that comprise the traffic unit are all trained in accident investigation, and they get to use some pretty neat toys while they're doing it. Officer Brandon Flowers is one of five officers assigned to the Council Bluffs Police Department traffic unit. Unlike patrolmen who are assigned to one of the city's eight police districts, the members of the traffic unit are more free range. I don't want to say we have free reign, but a traffic officer. You can go all throughout the city, Flowers said during his February 23rd Citizens Police Academy presentation. From the east end of town, you can head down to Lake Manawa, head to the west end. You can kind of check everything out. Due to their ability to roam the city, traffic units are usually sent to crash scenes, Flowers said. We're not required to take them, he said. Out of courtesy to the district guys, we usually do. Just because we don't need them working on, like, a male-female disturbance or something, and then immediately when they're done, get sent to a crash. Accident scenes can take hours to process, from interviewing witnesses to documenting evidence, and those are hours that a district officer doesn't necessarily have to devote to a single call. 
Also, when a traffic unit is called to a scene, we're going to look at it a little differently, Flowers said. Flowers showed a class a video taken from one of the city's public works cameras. The video showed the intersection of 25th Street and West Broadway. It's night, dark, and a pedestrian is walking north across Broadway. The pedestrian is walking against the light and appears to be unsteady on their feet. Suddenly, a car, which has a green light, comes from the right side of the screen and collides with the pedestrian. When the traffic unit arrives at a scene like this, we're looking for skid marks, tire marks. Is the driver intoxicated? Is the pedestrian intoxicated? Because there's also a good portion of times the pedestrian's at fault for it. Flowers said, I'm not saying the driver shouldn't yield because that's just the right thing to do, you know? Don't hit someone. But at the same time, you get a dark roadway and somebody darts out in front of you, you can only stop so fast. That's another thing the traffic unit can do. Determine how fast a car was going before slamming on the brakes. There's some really fancy algebra you can do as well, Flowers said. And based on, we know how wide roadways are, and we can go measure that roadway, and we can measure how wide it is and how fast it takes that car to go that distance. And the formula works, and it spits us out a number. The traffic unit has a couple of neat tools that can help it map the scene as well. In order to document a scene, the traffic unit uses an expensive Lika... I'm unsure if I pronounced that right, so I'll spell it L-E-I-C-A, RTC 360, 3D laser scanner, which is set on top of a pole. As it spins around, its cameras are mapping everything it sees. When it's done with one area, it's moved to another part of the scene, and it scans again. Eventually, given enough data, the camera software can recreate a 3D rendering of an accident or crime scene. Coupled with images taken from the camera-equipped DJI Mavic 2 drone that a member of the traffic unit is piloting overhead, the software is able to recreate the scene in low, medium, or high resolution, which investigators can use to read the scene even after they've left the physical space. Oftentimes, the traffic unit will also get a search warrant for a vehicle's airbag control module. These little sensors sit right inside the steering wheel and record all kinds of data, like whether the driver or passengers were wearing safety belts and how fast the vehicle was going when the airbag deployed. As all the data of what we are doing when you drive, Flowers said, when you pushed your brake, was your seatbelt on? How fast were you going 10 seconds prior to the crash? How fast 5 seconds prior to airbag appointment? So we write a search warrant for that data, and then we have another program we can plug that into, and it gives us this whole long information sheet, and it tells us all that information. While the traffic unit has a lot of responsibilities beyond simple traffic enforcement, issuing tickets is still a big part of the job. But Flowers wants it known that they don't write tickets just to write tickets. If anybody here has gotten a citation, I apologize if it came from Officer Flowers, he said. 
Our main goal is not to write tickets, to just keep stacking tickets on people. It's to change people's behavior. That's what it comes down to. If you're driving with a suspended license, you need to take the correct steps to stop having a suspended license. If you get a citation for operating a vehicle without registration, you need to get your car registered, which is just kind of how it works. Our next article is Abraham Lincoln High School to Induct Three Alumni into Hall of Fame by Tim Johnston. Abraham Lincoln High School will induct three distinguished alumni into its Hall of Fame at 7 p.m. on March, Monday the 13th. In the school auditorium, the event will be held in conjunction with the induction ceremony for the Abraham Lincoln National Honor Society. Guests are invited to stay for a reception following the ceremony. Lyle Moraine Lyle L. Moraine graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School in 1932 and went on to succeed as a songwriter and on the big screen. He was born in Council Bluffs on February 7, 1914, grew up in the heart of the city, and attended schools in the district. During his time at Abraham Lincoln, he found his love of fine arts working behind the scenes of an old auditorium. He is a great example of youth in the Depression area. While he and many others lacked economic resources, he succeeded in his academics and in fine arts. All of these factors led him to being able to communicate and compete with people of any background and from anywhere in the country. After graduation, he moved to Southern California with his family. Moraine always embodied his Midwest roots of optimism and perseverance. He worked at a rock quarry where he sustained a minor injury However, this did not dishearten him. After going to the doctor, he is told he had a very handsome face and could be an actor. He took this compliment and turned it into his career. Thanks to his passion for fine arts and music, he quickly became active in the songwriting and acting industry. His career was put on hold when he was called to serve during World War II. This experience would inspire what became the most popular song he could ever write. During his time at sea, he found himself on a ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, feeling homesick on Christmas Eve. The only thing that he could see on the ship was a small island. He rushed to the chaplain's organ and started writing Christmas Island, a song about spending Christmas alone and the island that seemed to be mocking him. The Andrew sisters sang it, and it became one of the top ten songs of 1946. It was later recorded by Bob Dylan, Bing Crosby, and Jimmy Buffett. Most recently, it was used in the hit Christmas movie, Elf. Continuing his musical career, Moraine composed some 25 songs that were recorded by many well-known artists, including Anytime You Say, Birds Like to Fly, and California Sunshine. He also continued his acting career by appearing in 36 films. In 1937, he appeared in Sing Me a Love Song and the Bette Davis Humphrey Bogart movie, Marked Woman. In 1941, he appeared in Dive Bomber and Abbott and Costello's Buck Privates. Some of his other movies include Chicago Deadline, Atlantic Flight, and Melody for Two. In 1975, he had made his final on-screen appearance in Sheila Levine 
is dead and living in New York. He's also an acting double and a dialogue coach while working for Warner Bros. He may have found success in Hollywood and worked with famous actors and musicians, but he never forgot where he came from and how he was raised. He often visited Council Bluffs while living in California. He never married or had children to carry on his legacy, but he did leave a legacy of enjoyable movies and music. He's a great example of a kid from the Midwest who succeeded in Hollywood. We are honored to have him in Abraham Lincoln's Hall of Fame. The next new Hall of Famer is Judith O'Brien. From mentoring many counselors and principals, supporting countless service projects, and visiting hundreds of Alzheimer's patients with her therapy dog, Griffin, Judy O'Brien had made a profound impact on communities throughout the metro area. She worked in the Council Bluffs Community School District for more than 30 years before retiring in 2011 from her position as supervisor of secondary education. She had been a recipient of many awards and honors for her incredible work that has presented at national education conferences all throughout the U.S. Her scholarship, service, character, and leadership are truly admired. After graduating from Abraham Lincoln High School in 1965, she attended Colorado State University, where she had earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Social Science. She then returned to Council Bluffs to teach at Kern, Wilson, and Longfellow. While teaching, she also learned her master's degree in guidance counseling from Creighton University, and then served as a guidance counselor at Kern Junior High from 1977 to 1955. O'Brien continued her academic studies to an administrative endorsement from Creighton University, which would launch the next phase in her career. She served as an assistant principal at Thomas Jefferson High School from 1966 to 2002, and then as principal of Wilson Middle School and Thomas Jefferson. Her leadership during this time, however, is exemplified by her involvement, contribution, and commitment to education and her students. She was committed to her own learning and professional growth, as well as to others. Throughout her career, she had attended numerous professional conferences and took an additional 60 graduate hours before her degrees. She also presented at several state and national conferences, including the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development's National Convention and the National Schools Development Council National Convention and was a member of Iowa State Adolescent Literary Research and Development Team. O'Brien's character and service is exemplified in her community involvement. For several years, she had served on the board of the Southwest Iowa Educational Foundation, an organization dedicated to awarding scholarships to senior students in Southwest Iowa. She initiated and coordinated a scholarship drive for the Abraham Lincoln High School class of 1965 to provide an award through the, his foundation, raising more than $20,000 sustain a yearly $1,500 scholarship to a graduating Abraham Lincoln High School student. Her service is not limited to education. Through Therapy Dog Inc., she visited Alzheimer care facilities with her licensed therapy dog and serves on the organizing committee for Bluffs Bridge 
where she is helping bring Bridge Wiz into schools and youth organizations. O'Brien had been honored as a fine award recipient. Fine spelled F-I-N-E by the Southwest Iowa Leadership Academy and secured grants from the Iowa West Foundation and U.S. West for the Southwest Iowa Leadership Academy. It is my honor to officially welcome her to Abraham Lincoln's Hall of Fame. The next Abraham Lincoln's Hall of Famer is Brenda Mainwaring. Brenda Sutherland Mainwaring, 1982 graduate of Abraham Lincoln High School, is currently the president and CEO of the Iowa West Foundation. This amazing accomplishment is one of many she has earned as a dedicated and involved Council Bluffs native and graduate of Abraham Lincoln. Following high school, Mainwaring attended the University of Iowa, where she received both her bachelor's and master's degree in anthropology. She then worked for Union Pacific for 23 years. During her time at Union Pacific, she was the Director of Corporate Affairs from 1997 to 2007. From 2007 to 2013, she served as a Director of Public Affairs before being promoted to Assistant Vice President of Public Affairs in Houston. As an executive, she managed government and public affairs in 11 states. She received various notable awards, including 2017 Women of the Year from the WTS Houston Chapter, an organization dedicated to the advancement of women in transportation, Houston's 50 Most Influential Women of 2016, and the Greater Houston Chamber of Commerce's Breakthrough Women. She also became an active member in the Houston community as a member of the Greater Houston Women's Chamber of Commerce, Greater Houston Partnership, and Texas Business Leadership Council. Although the Houston community was a successful and rewarding experience for Mainwaring, her heart remained in Council Bluffs. Mainwaring had always hoped to return to Council Bluffs after living and working in Houston. When the CEO position opened up at the Iowa West Foundation, an organization responsible for providing millions of dollars in grants to improve and support Southwest Iowa, she saw this as an opportunity to come home, not just for her career, but to actively contribute to the community. Upon returning to Council Bluffs in 2020, she immediately integrated herself into her community. As a member of the Council Bluffs Chamber of Commerce, she has established two programs to support and empower women to develop and grow as leaders. The Executive Women's Partnership brings accomplished leaders together in an inclusive environment to grow and accelerate the role women play in Council Bluffs executive leadership. While the Women Inspiring Women's Partnership invites all women together to motivate, inspire, connect, and celebrate each other. Mainwaring has become an active and influential member in countless organizations in Council Bluffs, such as the Planning Commission, Chamber of Commerce, Rotary Club, Potawatomi County Conservation Board, and Foundation, and the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation. Her active participation and leadership in the Council Bluffs community has made her an exemplary role model especially for aspiring young women. 
Her dedication to improving our community in Southwest Iowa is admirable, and we are proud to have her as part of our Abraham Lincoln High School Hall of Fame. You are listening to Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Monday, March 6, 2023, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Shelby from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Again, it's a toll-free number. You can call anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. And now we will turn to today's obituaries. The first one is Betty Cutler. On February 18th, 2023, Betty Shockey Cutler, at the age of 97, passed away at Bickford Assisted Living in Marshalltown, Iowa. Betty was born on November 1st, 1925 in Council Bluffs to Muriel and Lou Ross. She graduated from Oakland High School and received a Bachelor's of Arts degree from University of Colorado in 1946. Betty spent most of her life in Council Bluffs and had a deep love for the Midwest, her friends, the community, and her family. Betty was a teacher when living in Colorado and later in life was an administrator for the Girl Scouts. She also served on many boards, but her true love was for her family. Known as Mom, Grammy, GGB, and Ready Steady Betty, she loved unconditionally and accepted everyone for who they are. 35 years ago, she started a tradition for her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of gathering at Lake Okaboji, Iowa. That tradition and her spirit continues every summer with Camp Betty. She is preceded in death by her parents, her brother, Lou Ross, and her two husbands, Everett Shockey and Bill Cutler. Betty is survived by her six children and their spouses, Robert Shockey, Anne Fife, Jane Engel, John Shockey, Tom Shockey, and Bill Shockey. She is also survived by her 14 grandchildren, 13 great-grandchildren, and the extended Cutler family. Visitation will be Friday, March 10th. 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. with funeral service late Saturday, March 11th at 10 a.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home. Memorial contributions are suggested for the First Congregational Church and Iowa River Hospice in Marshalltown. The funeral home address is 545 Willow Avenue in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and again, the visitation will be March 10th, 2023, from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home and Crematory. Our next obituary is for Barbara Stowe, um, or Stow, I'll, pron- I'll spell it out, S-T-O-W-E. 
Barbara Stowe, October 9th, 1941, February 28th to 23. Barbara Jean Stowe of Council Bluffs passed away peacefully on February 28th, 2023 at her home after a long illness. She was born October 9th, 1941 in Sioux City, Iowa to Charles Thiemann and Gertrude Yadin. She married Sidney F. Stowe, Jr. on April 7, 1962, in Sioux City. She was preceded in death by her parents and brother, David Diamond. She was survived by her husband, Sidney, children, Tammy Bell of Council Bluffs, Theresia, um, T-H-R-E-S-I-A, Hedinger, of Papillion, Nebraska, Sidney Stow III of Neola, Iowa, Bonnie McClary of Springfield, Missouri, Mary Flaherty, F-L-A-H-A-R-T-Y of Persia, Iowa, 22 grandchildren, 22 great-grandchildren, and siblings Wayne, Rebecca, Beth, Curtis, Margaret, and Michael. Services will be held March 11th at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The address of that church is 2303 Butler Street in Council Bluffs, Iowa, zip code 51503 at 2.30 p.m. Our last obituary is for Dean Fuegnu. I am very unsure if I pronounced that right, so I will spell the last name. And further on in the article, if it goes by the last name, I will just say Dean. But the last name is spelled V-U-A-G-N-I-A-U-X. Dean L. Fuegnu, aged 72 years, was born March 11, 1950, to the late Warren and Cleo and Council Bluffs passed away March 2nd, 2023 at his residence in Omaha, Nebraska. Dean was a mail carrier for the Council Bluffs post office for many years. He served his country during the Vietnam War and the U.S. Army 4th Infantry Division. Dean is preceded in death by his parents, survived by siblings David Vuegnu, De- Deborah Moser, Dan many other loving family and friends. Visitation will be Tuesday, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Private Family Interment, Omaha National Cemetery. Memorials to the Midlands Humane Society. The address to the service is... 545 Willow Avenue in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And again, that is March 7th, 2023, from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home and Crematory. Now moving into the sports section of the Daily Nonpareil. Hawkeyes stumble in regular season finale by Steve Batterson.
Held without a field goal over the final six minutes, 12 seconds, Iowa stumbled across the finish line of the Big Ten basketball regular season Sunday. The Hawkeyes mustered only two free th throws in the final three minutes as Nebraska earned an 81-77 victory at Carver Hawkeye Arena that slashed Iowa's hopes of earning a second seed for the upcoming Big Ten tourney. C.J. Wilcher finished the Hawkeyes off, scoring on a drive to break a 75-75 deadlock with 3 minutes and 26 seconds remaining, and burying the last of the Cornhuskers' 14 three-point baskets just under a minute later to give Nebraska an 80-75 advantage Iowa couldn't catch. We just didn't stop them defensively. We let guys get hot and they stayed hot throughout the game, Iowa forward Chris Murray said. That's on our part. We've got work to do before we go to Chicago later this week. Because Northwestern was able to win at Rutgers 65-53 on Sunday night, Iowa lost not only a game Sunday, but a double bye in the Big Ten tourney. The Hawkeyes will be the fifth seed in the conference tournament and will take the court at United Center on Thursday, facing the winner of a Wednesday game between 12th-seeded Wisconsin and 13th-seed Ohio State. Tip-off is set at approximately 1.30 p.m. The winner will face 4th-seeded Michigan State on Friday at 1.30 p.m. in the quarterfinals. Disappointed in the senior day setback, guard Patrick McCaffrey said Nebraska took Iowa out of its game during the defining minutes. For us not to get a field goal the final six minutes, that's not us, McCaffrey said. We missed some three free throws, some front ends of the bonus, missed a few shots, some good looks that just didn't go in. It was frustrating. Cornhuskers coach Fred Hoiberg was impressed with his team's defensive effort that held the Hawkeyes to 29.7% shooting in the second half and cooled Iowa from the perimeter. After hitting 9 of 21 three-point attempts in the first half of, as Nebraska doubled down on the post, Iowa connected on just 3 of 16 tries from behind the arc in the second half. That's the third best offense in the country, and they've been playing good basketball lately, Hoiberg said. A tough team to shut down offensively, but we got some big stops down the stretch that made a difference. The Cornhuskers didn't allow the Hawkeyes to score again from the field after Murray hit a basket as he was fouled to give Iowa a 71-70 lead with 6 minutes and 12 seconds to play. Murray, who finished with 22 points, missed the free throw, and the Hawkeyes missed their final six attempts from the field. Iowa hit just six free throws for the rest of the way, but was still within a 80-77 score when Philip Rebracca, R-E-B-R-A-C-A, -A, stepped to the line with one minute and 15 seconds remaining, but missed both. Sam Hoiberg, hit the first of two free throws with 30 seconds to go to give Nebraska a four-point lead, and then drew a charging call on Connor McCaffrey on the ensuing possession to deny the Hawkeyes a chance to pull within one possession. Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey 
said the play of Wiltshire and Hoiberg typified how the Cornhuskers were able to pull off the win. He said the Hawkeyes had locked in defensively on Derek Walker, Kaisi Tominaga, um, K-E-I-S-E-I is the first name, and T-O-M-I-N-A-G-A was the last name, and Sam Graysel, only to be beaten by the touch shown by Jamarquez Lawrence, Wilcher Hoiberg, and Wilhelm Breidenbach. Graysel scored a team-leading 16 points, but Lawrence, who averaged 4.3 points per game, hit 5 of 8 shots from 3-point range to account for his 15 points, and Wilcher Hoiberg and Breidenbach combined to go 5 of 10 from behind the arc. We geared out defense toward the other guys. Our rotations weren't great or as good as they should have been, and those guys who had potential to make shots stepped up and made them. Coach McCaffrey said. The tone was set early. Nebraska hit seven of its first ten shots to open the game, including four three-pointers that led the Cornhuskers to an 18-9 lead when Wilcher knocked down a shot with 13 minutes and 22 seconds remaining in the first half. Iowa answered with a run of 12 unanswered points. Patrick McCaffrey delivered the first two of his five first-half three-pointers. Peyton Sanford hit from behind the arc, and Murray completed a three-point play at the the push the Hawkeyes in front 21-18 midway through the half. Finishing one point shy of a career high, Patrick McCaffrey scored 16 of his game-high 23 points in the first 20 minutes to help Iowa maintain a 43-39 halftime lead. My shot felt good. I was moving well, he said. I just wish it could have led us to a win. Iowa maintained a lead and prompted Coach Hoiberg to take a timeout after Hawkeyes opened their largest margin of the game at 62-55, following a three-pointer by Murray with 12 minutes and 5 seconds to play. Sam Hoiberg buried a three-pointer following a timeout and later gave the Cornhuskers their first lead since the first half at 68-67 when he knocked down another three-pointer with eight minutes and 12 seconds to go. We regrouped during the timeout and I thought our response was good, Hoiberg said, after his team won for the fifth time in the last six games. Our next article will be Cyber Attack Hits Major Hospital in Spanish City of Barcelona. There's a subtitle that says, A ransomware cyber attack on one of Barcelona's main hospitals has crippled the center's computer system and forced the cancellation of 150 non-urgent operations and up to 3,000 patient checkups. A ransomware cyber attack on one of Barcelona's main hospitals had crippled the center's computer system and forced the cancellation of 150 non-urgent checkups and up to 3,000 patient checkups, officials said on Monday. The attack Sunday on the Hospital Clinic de Barcelona shut down computers at the facility's laboratories, emergency room, and pharmacy at three main centers and several external clinics. We can't make any prediction as to when the system will be back up to normal, hospital director Antoni Castells told the news conference on Monday. He said the hospital's contingency plan would allow them to function for several days, 
but he hoped the system would fix sooner. A Catalonia regional government statement said that the region's cybersecurity agency was working to restore the system. The agency said Monday was attack orchestrated from outside of Spain by a group called Ransom House. Regional government telecommunications secretary Sergi Marcin, um, the first name is spelled S-E-G-I, and the last name is M-A-R-C-E with an accent, and said that hackers hadn't made any ransom demand so far that no money would be paid. The hospital's press department said that all written work was being done on paper and that the hospital was diverting new urgent cases to other hospitals in the city. Spanish state news agency EFE said the attack cut off access to patient records and communication between units. Hopping into some entertainment articles, um, Leonard Skynerd founding member Gary Rosington dead at 71. This was written by the Daily Nonpareil itself. Um, Gary Rossington, Leonard Skinner's last surviving original member, who also helped to found the group, died Sunday at the age of 71. No cause of death was given. It was our deepest sympathy and sadness that we had to advise that we had lost our brother, friend, family member, songwriter, and guitarist, Gary Rossington, today the band wrote on Facebook. Gary is now with his Skinnerd brothers and family in heaven and playing it pretty like he always does. Please keep Dale, Mary, Annie, and the entire Rossington family in your prayers and respect the family's privacy at this difficult time. Rossington cheated death more than once, Rolling Stone reported. He survived a car accident in 1976 in which he drove his Ford Torino into a tree inspiring the band's cautionary song, That Smell. A year later, he emerged from the 1977 plane crash that killed singer Ronnie Van Zant, guitarist Steve Gaines, and backing vocalist Cassie Gaines, with two broken arms, a broken leg, and a punctured stomach and liver. It was a devastating thing, he told Rolling Stone in 2006. You can't just talk about it real casual and not have feelings about it. In later years, Rossington underwent quintuple bypass surgery in 2003, suffered a heart attack in 2015, and had numerous subsequent heart surgeries, most recently leaving Leonard Skinner in July 2021 to recover from another procedure. At recent shows, Rossington would perform portions of the concert and sometimes sat out full gigs. Rossington was born December 4, 1951, in Jacksonville, Florida, and raised by his mother after his father died. Upon meeting drummer Bob Burns and bassist Larry Junstrom, Rossington and his new friends formed a band which they tried to juggle amid their love of baseball. According to Rolling Stone, it was during a fateful Little League game Ronnie Van Zant hit a line drive in the shoulder blades of opposing player Bob Burns and met his future bandmates, Rossington, Burns, Van Zant, and guitarist Alan Collins gathered that afternoon at Burns's Jacksonville home to jam the Rolling Stones' Time is on My Side. Adopting Leonard Skinner's as the group's name, both a reference to a similarity named 
sports coach at Rossington's high school, and a character in the 1963 novelty hit, Hello Muda, Hello Fada, the band released their de- debut album, a collection of country-tinged blues rock and southern soul. The album included now classics like Tuesday's Gone, Simple Man, and Give Me Three Steps. But it was the closing track, the nearly 10-minute Free Bird, that became the group's calling card. Due is no small part to Rossington's evocative slide playing on his Gibson SG. Rossington told Rolling Stone that he never considered Skinner to be a tragic band. Despite all the band's drama and death, I don't think of it as tragedy. I think of it as life, he said, upon the group's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in 2006. I think the good outweighs the bad. Our next article is Hundreds Protests LGBTQ Bills at Iowa State Capitol by Caleb McAuliffe. Evan Hugel is worried about his future in Iowa. Hugel joined hundreds of Iowans to protest a surge of legislation that state lawmakers are considering this year that targets LGBTQ Iowans and topics in schools on Sunday. Bills, he says, will negatively affect him. A transgender sophomore at Ankeny High School, Hugel says he faces bullying in the school and lack of acceptance from some family members. But proposals to ban gender-affirming care for minors and restrict LGBTQ topics and students and other ways will make things even harder. I'm going to stand up and fight this because I don't want to live the rest of my school years in misery, he said. I don't want to live the rest of my life in misery. This seriously impacts my future, how I'm going to grow up being a trans guy. The recent increase in bills focused on LGBTQ issues in Iowa has made it hard for Hugel to see a future in Iowa. He was considering going to college at the University of Iowa or Iowa State, but now he's having second thoughts. Now I'm having to look at colleges out of state and be far away from my family just so I can be who I am, Hugel said, which I'm not looking forward to. Several hundred people crowded the west steps at the Iowa State Capitol to protest LGBTQ released bills lawmakers are considering this year. They held signs that said trans people belong in Iowa, in reference to state motto, our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain, and flew rainbow and trans pride flags. Democratic lawmakers, teachers, LGBTQ organizers and students who spoke at the rally said that the bills being advanced by the state's Republican majority contradict with notions of freedom and liberty they champion in other areas. Real liberty is the ability to read what you want, said Amy Wichendahl, a Hiawatha, um, Hiawatha city council member and transgender woman. Real liberty is having control over your own body. Real liberty is the ability to marry the person you love. Lawmakers have advanced bills out of committees this year, banning gender-affirming medical care for transgender minors, prohibiting instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in grades, requiring school employees to notify parents if they believe a child is transgender, and requiring students to use only bathrooms that align their biological sex. 
Republicans supporting the bills said that they were a reaction to concerns brought by constituents and parents, and they give parents more input into their child's education. On the bill to ban gender-affirming care for minors, Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley said last week the lawmakers are taking a cautious approach to the issue, despite advice from medical experts last month to keep health care options in place for transgender youth. Part of why we are here where we are today is I was surprised to find out that some of the major health care providers in the state were actually doing this when we inquired about it, Grassley said. So we are very strongly feeling about our position that we're taking on this issue. Teachers and education advocates said at the rally that the bills that dealt with LGBTQ issues in education were censorship and restricted the ability of teachers to be trusted resource for their students. Under a bill proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds, any school employee would need to notify parents if a student expresses a gender identity different from their biological sex, and schools would need parents' permission to refer to a student by a different name or set of pronouns. Republicans have said that the provisions would give parents information about important decisions their child is making, but some teachers said the bill could put students in harm's way if the parents do not accept them. They prevent educators from fulfilling our important societal role of being trusted, safe adults for all students, said Stacy Schmidt, a teacher and chair of the Iowa State Association's LGBTQ task force. We are often the first adults that young people go to to ask questions about any number of topics. A group of students who organized a statewide school walkout last week spoke at the rally, saying they plan to continue to oppose the legislation. The Iowa Queer Student Alliance is hosting another rally in the state capitol this coming Wednesday, they said. We have shown up time after time, and we're not going away. Emma Mitchell, the group founders, said. Our last story today will be St. Albert Middle High School teams compete in regional science bowls by Tim Johnson. Two teams from St. Albert Catholic School have competed in regional science bowl events sponsored by the U.S. Department of Energy this winter. The high school team competed in the Iowa Regional High School Science Bowl on January 28th, hosted by the Ames National Laboratory at Iowa State University. Cedar Falls High School was selected to advance to the National Science Bowl. The competition is a quiz bowl over math and science, according to sponsor Tara Widerin, W-I-E-D-E-R-I-N. Specific subjects include life science, biology, physics, chemistry, energy, earth and space science, and math. Each team can take five students, four play at a time, with one alternate, she said. We can switch that alternate in and out at the midpoint of each round. The round is two eight-minute halves with a two-minute break in the middle. The high school team practices once a week to go over questions provided by the Department of Energy and to review previous materials, Wydren said. The middle school team competed in the Ames Laboratory in Iowa State Middle School Science Bowl on February 18th, said Wydren, who is also the sponsor for that team. South Middle School of Waukee was selected as the winner of the contest. Well, I wish St. Albert Middle High School, um, both teams, a uh, 
success in the regional science bowls as well as the national science bowl but that brings us to the end of today's reading of the council bluffs daily nonpareil for monday march 6 2023 on iris the iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print handicapped in des moines i the nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call the toll-free number from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Shelby from Drake University in Des Moines, and thank you so much for listening. (laughs) 